it's a responsibility. That law degree, we've learned how to think like a lawyer. So now use it. It doesn't have to be some fancy title. It doesn't have to be the things that I've done. We all have our own way of contributing and giving back to society for the benefit of having this law degree. So leadership can mean whatever you want it to be, but it's about making sure that you give back to the community in some way, perhaps mentoring the next generation. There's an opportunity for all of us to help in our little piece of the world. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer with nearly 20 years of legal social advocacy experience, is the chief of staff and counsel to the CEO at the Richmond Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and serves as a board member for the International Rett Syndrome Foundation. She is the founder of Pretty Brook, an award-nominated resource that educates and inspires legislative change by providing interviews with thought leaders and politicians about disability issues. Named after her daughter, Brooke, Pretty Brooke is also a powerful and moving account of this lawyer's own grief and advocacy journey. I am beyond honored to have such an inspiring guest on this week's episode. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Leslie Mehta. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I'd like to start by saying thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with lawyers who lead. I want to give our listeners some context. When we first started speaking about you being a guest, I initially reached out because I was interested in the leadership and advocacy work for the International Rett Foundation. But as we started talking, we really connected and you shared with me your personal story behind the work that you do. Could you share with our listeners the journey that brought you to the work that you're doing today? I would love to do that. It's a a passion of mine, actually. I, I guess I'll start a little bit with how I got to that point. I am a Howard Law graduate and we are all, it's ingrained in us to be social engineers. And so I crafted my trajectory in that way. I started out as a doing associate work at firms and then I was at a civil rights firm and other organizations. And then I was at the ACLU of Virginia and I was the legal director there. During that time is when my daughter Brooke was born. I had been doing civil rights, social justice work And it's a passion of mine. I continue with that. Part of that was disability rights work. It was one kind of small part of what I did. But then after my daughter, Brooke, was born, we found out that she was having challenges. She wasn't developing in the same way as other six-month-olds. And we didn't know what was happening. But as I, I say, one finger prick in 2017 changed our fate. It was um, Rett Syndrome. And we didn't even know what that was. We had to Google it. And that kind of sent us on another journey of trying to figure out what it was, how we could advocate for her. And then it became a larger thing of advocating for disability rights as a whole, which ultimately led me to being on the board of the International Rett Syndrome Foundation where I'm very proud of the work that the organization does and help in a small way to contribute to that, particularly with lobbying for additional funding for Rett Syndrome and advocating for medical research. 
And we started down that path. And unfortunately, in March of 2021, Brookie passed away. But I continue that work really as a legacy to her. We're still hopeful that there will be a cure for Rett syndrome one day. And I still advocate on my prettybrook.com website and the social media pages and all of those things for other disability issues. And I always say I advocated for other folks throughout my career. I can certainly advocate for my Brookie. And even though she's passed away, I still think of it as advocating for Brooke and others like Brooke. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for trusting in me and this podcast to share this story. It means a lot. Although we're recording this right now in February, we will be releasing this the week of the one year anniversary of Brooke's passing to honor her. I really appreciate that too. Thank you so much. It's my honor to do that and to to play a small part in that. I, I appreciate that so much. What is it about sharing your story and the work that you do? Why is that important to Brooke's legacy? Wow. I've worked hard on this kind of in, internally. I've thought about it because initially when she first passed away, just in terms of my own way of processing things, the first thing that I wanted to do was dive in deeper. Honestly, I thought I need to take a step back because I do have to think about my own <laughs> self-care. So I took a step back and I actually still haven't ramped up quite as much as I'd like. I think about a little bit more strategically now about how I spend my time with this because I can go deep down into it and it can take you to a, a place of grief, honestly. But I actually was talking to my congresswoman, Abigail Spanberger, who actually, she She's been amazing. She actually sponsored the bill on Rett syndrome funding to be part of the DOD, is the Department of Defense. And she sponsored it on the representative side, the House side. And we talked numerous times. She's my own representative. Mm -hmm. And this was all before Brooke passed away. I informed her that Brooke had passed and she actually ended up recording a message for our funeral for Brooke. Wow. She had met her a couple of times. And so I say that to say, when I was having a conversation with her to thank her, she said to me, Leslie, I know that you are a doer, but you might need to step back a little bit when mm -hmm. it comes to this, because you also have to think about your own health, mental health, and diving right in might seem great at the time, but it may delay the mental health aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I say that to say that, I still struggle with it, quite honestly, in terms of Brooke's legacy and my own self-care. But this work, to me, keeps her memory alive. Whenever I'm doing anything related to disability rights, when I'm advocating for something, accessibility issues, dealing with funding, medical research, caregivers, it's important that caregivers get the resources that they need. I'm thinking in terms of Brooke and her legacy. In fact, when we were doing those videos, sometimes she would look like she was nonverbal, but she had tons of expressions on her face. She would sometimes look like another video. Unlike my younger daughter, Blair, she was not really a fan of <laughs> being in front of the camera. But Brooke, I would say we're doing this for other kids like you who need a voice. 
that would shift the whole thing for her because I could tell, even though she was only five years old, that was a passion of hers too. She was all about helping. So when I think in terms of her legacy, that is what I think of. I don't want to do a disservice to myself or my mental health, but I also want to continue to keep her memory alive and to keep moving forward. And one day I hope and pray that there will be a cure for Rett syndrome so that other families do not have to endure what we had to endure. Absolutely. How do you find that balance? Have you found it yet? I have not. The thing is, there's a balance when you're caring for a person with a disability. And that is why I stepped back from the ACLU of Virginia. Being the legal director there was a 24-hour job in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and I loved every minute of it, but I also had to think in terms of my family. Brooke was not able to walk or talk. She couldn't eat solid foods. We, we actually made her purees that she ate because I knew that nutrition was very important. I would make all of the stuff myself. And she was the little food critic. She would she, <laughs> she would say, you know, she would have that look of, oh, this is really good. If I tried a new thing, I would give her a, a bite and you could see her tasting. And then she would either say, hmm, and I'd say, Phew, okay. Or she'd look like, eh. And and I'd say, okay, we don't have to have this one again. That's okay. Yeah. um, There were all of those things going on. I had all of those extra responsibilities. And then I started the website, social media page. I was doing all of those things. And I want to make it clear, particularly for people who have challenging careers and also raising children with disabilities. That's a lot. And sometimes people feel as though they have to take a step back. I still work full-time. I'm the chief of staff and counsel to the CEO at RMTA, and it's a full-time job, but it's not a 24-7 job. Mm. And so that made all the difference for me and our family. It was a personal decision. My husband supported me either way, but it's just one of those things where you're just constantly thinking, am I doing enough in one area or am I focusing too much in another area? And it's a daily struggle. When I was approached to be on the board of the International Rett Syndrome Foundation, I had been working with the executive director, Melissa Kennedy. I was already helping with the funding and all of that stuff, the lobbying. She asked me about it. This was before Brooke passed away. And I hesitated for a moment because taking on one more thing was one more thing. Mm-hmm. Just to get back to your question, I guess the balance, I'm, I'm constantly trying to revisit it. Am I doing enough or too much in one area? I still have another two-year-old who needs my attention. And so I'm constantly thinking about that. So I haven't figured it out yet, but maybe one day. Yeah, I think balance is one of those really tough things for all of us to figure out. But I think the fact that you're so aware of, okay, this is a very important thing for me. I need to keep her legacy alive, but I also need to make sure that I am taking care of myself and constantly revisiting that is really important and great advice also (laughs) for for everyone out there. If only Um, I could take the advice. I know. So easy to dish it out, right? Right. It's so much harder. Yeah, I understand. So I want to dig a little bit because you 
you you talk about how you're at the ACLU and you love it and you're doing great work there, but it is a lot of work. And then you decide to take this step back. Why I want to talk about this is because it's a moment that a lot of people, especially now, can understand where people are revisiting their priorities in life, revisiting their purpose. What was the thought process in helping you make that decision? And then how is the job that you have today a better fit for you? And how do you weigh and value that? Sure. At the time, it was during the height of the previous administration. There were a lot of lawsuits and potential lawsuits. There was just a lot going on. And frankly, and I don't know that we talked about this, in 2017, Charlottesville happened. Mm. And we represented the Nazis. Obviously, as an African-American woman, that was not an easy decision. It just so happened to be my 10-year wedding anniversary. So I was actually down in, I think it was either Virginia Beach or Nags Head for our anniversary. We had just learned the month before that Brooke was diagnosed with Rett syndrome. I already had these kind of feelings inside about, do I need to do something different? Mm-hmm. A nurse, by the way, one of Brooke's multiple hospital visits had said, so which one of you doesn't work? And I said, we both work. We're both lawyers. I had gone down this whole thing of we met in law school and all that. And she said, you realize you're not going to be able to work. You're going to have to 24 seven, take care of this child. And so I had that in the back of, that was, that was a hard pill for me to swallow. And I didn't agree with her, but I felt as though it was challenging my motherhood. Of course. Yeah. A lot of times when we hear those things, it challenges. Right. Exactly. And so I was taken aback and I was still a relatively new mother. At that time, she was not quite two. So those are kind of things in the background. We said we were still going to take this trip. We needed to clear our minds. And so the three of us went down to the beach. Then the executive director tells me, actually, before I left, we heard that there was this person who wanted to have this protest. She said, I don't know. It sounds like they can cancel or move the protest. I don't see that there's a particular problem with this. I'd done a little bit of research and I said, it sounds like his protest is tied to what the location is. It may be something that he could you know, potentially challenge. We knew it was Nazis and that kind of thing. But I jokingly said, he's not going to reach out to the ACLU. And I went on vacation. (laughs) So I get this call from our executive director saying, you will not believe this. He actually did reach out to us. Wow. This was my first vacation at the ACLU of Virginia. I had not taken one and this was my 10 year anniversary. We talked about it and she totally supported me. I said, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. I'll read the briefs, but I'm not coming back. And she's, she completely agreed. Someone else did the initial drafting. Someone else did the arguing, but I was reading the briefs. I was mm-hmm. giving comments and all of those things that you do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we took on the case. Obviously, we did not know it was going to happen like this. There was no indication that there was any violence that would occur. We also thought if there was evidence on the other side, it would have been presented. And I didn't see anything like that. When I read the briefing, I thought we might actually win this. I still to this day don't, I'd never met him in person. So I don't know that he knows that I'm African-American. Mm. <laughs> and by some of the things that he said on calls, I'm not sure <laughs> uh, that he did know. 
But we took on the case, which was a hard one, because we felt that was the right thing to do. Freedom of speech must mean something. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly not an easy decision. And it was not an easy time. We got a lot of backlash, particularly after the violence and the death of Heather Heyer, which I understand the concerns on the other side. It's not something that's lost on me particularly as an African-American woman. But I just learned about the Rett syndrome diagnosis. We got death threats. Internally, there were a lot of people who made comments. My calls were no longer being returned internally in some instances from other ACLU affiliates. It was a, a rough time. And so all of that kind of played into me needing to do something different. Yeah. So that in a nutshell is the process. I just took a little time to kind of think through what things would be satisfying to me and still keep a toe in the legal community. Yeah. Some of the things that I do outside of the legal community, the lobbying and And I'm on a commission for racial equity and equity in Virginia law. I was appointed by the now former governor of Virginia. Those kinds of things are sustaining as well. I would like to mention when people are thinking about their legal careers, I always advise young lawyers to think of it in its totality. I feel as though your day job is one aspect of it. Yes. Once you get that law degree, Mm -hmm. you can do things like be on commissions, on boards, advocate in the community. I started out with my personal advocacy portion, just what do I want to do? And I started doing it. You don't need a a title. You don't need someone to tell you that you can do it. You can do it. So that's my long-winded way of answering your question. No, it's wise words, Leslie. Really wise words. I want to make sure that we get to this So you're going through this diagnosis, you're reassessing your professional career, you are trying to figure out how to continue to be that social engineer while also taking care of your family and yourself. It's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Is there any advice that you could give to friends, family members, coworkers about how to support others going through the loss of a child? I think when it comes to grief, it's individual and unique. I think that even though my husband and I were both going through the same thing, we handled it very differently. But for me, one of the great things is that I have two wonderful, amazing sisters. My mother is amazing. I have friends and neighbors who reached out. The thing about it was they didn't wait for me to tell them what I needed. Mm. They just did it. Blair was a year and a half old when Brooke passed away. My mom, my sisters came. My best friend, Kim, came. They cooked, they cleaned. And then neighbors, people I didn't even really know who were down the street brought casseroles. Something as simple as sending a text or saying, I have a picture. I'm not sure if you uh, have seen this. I don't know if you want to see this right now. I can send it to you if you like. So if I were not in a place that I'd feel up to looking at another picture, then they wouldn't send it. Right. I I say this all the time. Her school was amazing. She was still in virtual kindergarten. And one of the things that I kept saying was she didn't get to finish kindergarten. And they did this whole program and they gave 
me a certificate of completion of kindergarten. People ask, if there were a fire, what one thing would you grab besides your family? (laughs) (laughs) It would be that certificate. It meant the world to me. They released butterflies. They have up a little plaque at, at the front of the school with her name. It keeps her memory alive. And talking about Brooke, it was for me to just to say her name, to just acknowledge that she existed for five years. Sometimes you just like to hear that person's name. She was a person. She was funny. She hated school some days. Just a regular kid. People who care can do all sorts of things that could be beneficial and continue the memory of those who are grieving. So it's not one thing and and it's continuous. She's always here in my heart every day. So if someone waited, they said, oh, I didn't really say anything. So maybe it's too late. Don't think that. Okay. If you think about it in a year and say, I didn't say anything before, but I wanted to reach out and see how you're doing. Do that. Just say it. Even if it's been years later, just say it. That's my advice. I think that's great advice. There are people who maybe wanted to say something and didn't know what to say and then felt like it was too late and don't know what to do. And I think it's really powerful to hear from you to say it's okay at any time and really wanting to just be able to keep her memory alive, to say her name out loud. Mm -hmm. That's powerful and impactful. And I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind me asking, I know it's only been a year since her passing, but what do you think Brooke would be like today? How do you think she would have grown? Oh my gosh, that is such a great question. When I think about how she would be now, I think about how she would have a relationship with her sister. It was still very new. When Blair was born, Brooke felt like she was taking over. (laughs) So we'd have mommy Brooke sleepovers because she was feeling as though she wasn't getting enough attention. So then it was eventually okay, I don't need sleepovers anymore. So I realized she's getting used to this little baby. And then it started becoming a cute little relationship between the two of them. And I have this one picture of Brooke and Blair looking at each other. And it it looks like Brooke is trying to impart wisdom on Blair. It's so cute. And I think that their relationship would have grown stronger. And that's what That's one of the things that's heartbreaking to me because I have two sisters and I cherish our relationships. But yeah, that's the part that I think about. How would that have grown? And Brooke was getting a lot more proficient with her Toby eye gaze device and being able to say what she wanted to say through the device. So it makes me wonder how would things have been? And then certainly as we inch closer, hopefully to a cure, how would it have been if there had been a cure and she could walk and talk and have more control of her hands and do those things too? Those are some of the things that I think about. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I feel like we've learned so much about you and your journey today. Out of the whole experience so far, if there was one thing that you took away from this experience with Brooke, what have you learned the most? Resilience. I thought I was a tough, resilient person before Brooke. We were older parents. I was 38 when Brooke was born. I was 42 when Blair was born. 
But one of the things I wanted, I really wanted patience. <laughs> and I got that like tenfold in trying to, to deal with all of these situations. But I feel as though from just the journey with Brooke, I learned a lot about being resilient. Like now it's a lot harder to rattle me, I think. People will say things like, you seem so positive, you seem so strong, but I feel like Brooke was the strong one. She's the one that endured all of the hospital visits. She had surgeries and procedures and seizures and all of those things that she endured. I was lucky enough to be along for the ride with her. When things seem to not be going my way or I get frustrated or I feel as though I'm not doing enough in one part of my legal career, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners can attest to as well. I think back to all of that and I think I've done a lot. I buried my baby. I can do anything. That's what I think about. If I could do that, there's nothing that I can't do. I'm just taking a second to really let that sink in. It's true. It was just a normal day and she took a nap and didn't wake up. We were hopeful for clinical trials. We were hopeful that she would live a long life, even if she, even if there had not been a cure. We were hopeful for a long life. We were preparing for what would happen with her once we passed away. These were the things that we were thinking about. It's if I could do that, I can do anything or deal with anything. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Yeah, that's the perspective of it all now. Mm-hmm. How do you think all of that informs how you approach the work that you do today? Mm. It is the work that I do today. <laughs> Even when we talk about big you know, multi-million dollar projects and reviewing the contracts and whether this is going to happen or whatever, it puts all of that into perspective. So it doesn't have to necessarily be social advocacy. I think that one of the things about being a lawyer I've always thought was interesting is that no matter how you practice, no matter how you do what you do, you get to bring yourself to the work. Even if it's just a contract, you get to bring who you are. And so I don't know, I feel like it's incorporated no matter what into what I do. It's incorporated into the advocacy that I do. You bring who you are to all of those things, the passions that you want to do in the side work that you do, the volunteering. We were all blessed to have this law degree. And then at that point, it's up to you what you do with it. I love that so much. And I will say right now, based on this story, that I want you on my side, Leslie, if I ever need a lawyer. <laughs> if I get to choose one, it's going to be you, Leslie. I'll tell you that right now. Leslie, yes. thank you for this. I can't tell you how much this conversation has meant to me. I know it's going to be really impactful to our listeners as well. One more question, and then we're going to wrap up. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? One of the things that is really important to me and has been is the mentoring piece. And I get to do that a little bit now sometimes as well. I think that for me, it is very important to be able to retain lawyers of color and women lawyers. It is paramount. And what can we do as a community, a legal community, to make sure that happens? There are so many who for a multitude of reasons decide that they're going to drop out 
and not participate in any aspect. And it is concerning. Not everybody wants to be partner at a law firm, but there are so many who don't find a space for themselves. And it does make me wonder, what is it? What are those issues? There are women, people of color who just find themselves not fitting in one way or another. And I like to mentor young law students or folks who are just starting out. But sometimes that's not necessarily the issue. There are high percentages of females who are graduating from law school, high percentages of people of color graduating from law school. But somewhere along the way, people fizzle out. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily have the answer, but I think that's something that the legal community needs to look inward about. What are the obstacles? When I, it probably couldn't have happened because of all the things that were going on with my career when I was at the ACLU, but perhaps under different circumstances, it could have worked. Maybe there could have been a co-legal director position or something like that. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. I wasn't creative enough to even think of those kinds of things. I will say my husband is a very good support as well. But just in our culture, women are the ones usually who are doing the bulk of the caregiving. And so I think for a lot of reasons, women are taking a step back when you're talking about something that's a 24-7 kind of job. And then, oh, by the way, afterwards, we're meeting with the client for drinks or something like that. Sometimes it's just not sustainable. It's so true. I remember that very clearly, the after work socialization or the after work things that would deepen relationships with people at work or deepen your Mm -hmm. ability to get that extra project or extra case. And as a woman, a lot of times make a decision there and say, I can't give more here anymore. I have to now go home. And it's not just mothers. I started having those feelings before I became a mother, because first of all, I was thinking about potentially being a mother. But even of those of us who choose a different path. If it's all white men, there are lots of things that you can have in common outside of race and gender. Uh, Don't get me wrong. But but at the beginning of my career, when you're talking about somebody who's 45 years old, who you think is super old, and you're 25, and you have nothing else in common, but to maybe talk about, oh, you have a child, I used to be a child, there's really not that much. And you, you do feel isolated and different. And maybe this isn't the place I need to be. And there could be a lot of other reasons why women and people of color drop out. I don't know all the stats and all of the reasons, but I personally, I feel like those kinds of things can contribute to feeling like other and not feeling like you belong. And I will say, I don't necessarily think that it's always intentional on the part of the people at the top. I'm not trying to say that, mm-hmm. but it's a feeling it exists, whether or not people intentionally want to do it or not. Yeah. I think inclusivity requires intentionality, right? That is so true. That's so true. (laughs) And it's going out of your way to be aware of the nuances that are involved in being inclusive. That is so true. That's such a good point. Yeah. And 20 years ago, when I was starting out, I don't know that people were thinking like that. Hopeful that things are changing, but I don't think 20 years ago, people were as intentional about it. That's a great way to say it. Thank you. And I think what you're doing from a mentoring perspective is so important because I think being able to really speak to people about their experience and like you said, identifying the times where the fizzling out starts to happen and the why behind those fizzling out Mm -hmm. really requires 
actually speaking to people that are going through that at the time. Because I can talk to I'm blue in the face about my experiences 20 years ago, but that might be old information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know unless you're actually talking to people who are going through it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great work. And I love that you're mentoring. And I love that you're really doing the work to help identify what those things are. And on that note, what does leadership in the law mean to you? It means so many things. I think it is important in terms of giving back. I think it is important, even if it's informal, a lot of my mentorship these days is informal, just talking to people who are thinking about law school, or we've had tons of babysitters with everything that was happening with Brooke. So some of them, I consider them my second daughters. So I keep in touch with a lot of them about what their career paths are, even if it's not practicing law. And like, nurturing that next generation. I also think advocacy is important no matter what your day job is. I think it's a responsibility. That law degree is a responsibility to do things with it. We've learned how to think like a lawyer, so now use it. And it doesn't have to be some fancy title. It doesn't have to be disability rights. It doesn't have to be any of the things that I've done. I think that we all have our own way of contributing and giving back to society for really the benefit of having this law degree. So I think leadership can mean whatever kind of aspect of it you want it to be, but it's about making sure that you give back to the community in some way, maybe perhaps mentoring the next generation and doing something. Just do something. Do something to help. It doesn't have to be any particular thing. Just do something. It reminds me of what you said earlier about bringing yourself to the work. Like we all bring ourselves to the work. What I hear you saying is this combined obligation of using the gift of the law degree that we got with whatever it is within us that can positively impact society, whatever that means for us, whatever drives us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's so many things that can be done. So there's an opportunity for all of us to help in our little piece of the world. Yes, absolutely. If anyone wanted to support you in your advocacy and making sure that we keep Brooke's legacy alive, making sure that we help others in Brooke's situation, how can they do that? So first, please take a look at the website, prettybrook.com. It's Brooke with an E. And we also have a Facebook page, Pretty Brooke. We still do the YouTube channel as well. (laughs) Same name. But also, I would invite people, if they're particularly interested in Rett Syndrome, to learn more about it at International Rett Syndrome Foundation, because it is a great organization doing great work as well on Rett Syndrome research. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. I also want to once again say that we will always remember Brooke Mehta. I feel very honored to be able to be part of remembering her one year passing. Thank you so much. On behalf of the leaders and futures leaders listening, thank you, Leslie, for everything that you do. I thank you so much and thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. 
Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.